You are listening to More Human, the show where we share the stories that encourage leaders to make their businesses and organizations more human. I'm your host, Jeremy Newlick. It would be easy to reduce this story to a series of bumper stickers. Live your passion. Embrace your greatness. But that would be cutting short the full human impact of the story that is Shane Perrin. I first met Shane because he's a world record holder, and I was looking for stories of exceptional humans. So world record holder is a good box to check as it relates to being exceptional. Shane is an innovator within a sport called stand-up paddling. Now you may have seen these people. Over the past few years, it's become a thing. People take their boards out on lakes, they take their dogs out there with them, or they post their paddleboard headstands on Instagram. But before the sport was flooded with Lululemon yoga pants-clad fitness crowds, there was Shane. The guy took something associated with peaceful still water floating and turned it into a competitive sport. In races meant for kayaks and canoes, Shane has raced down rivers with rapids for hundreds of miles. He's paddled around the Florida Peninsula. He's paddled for 24 straight hours. That whole world record thing. Now you may be asking, what in the world does stand-up paddling have to do with helping me to make an organization more human? That's a fair question. Shane's story, this very human story, is a lesson in innovation. It's what it takes to see a vision and boldly pursue it. And for Shane, this pursuit includes the entire panoply of human challenge and triumph. His story includes emergency rooms, depressed and lonely basements, hypothermia, haters, worshipers, and just plain weirdness. And just a heads up, this story is told to you in two parts. Most of it was recorded more than a year ago in our studio. And it jumps around a bit, much like the rivers that Shane races down that take some unexpected turns. In Shane's story, it starts with how most innovation stories start. In a casual conversation with a friend more than 10 years ago, back when stand-up paddling was just the thing that a few hip kids were doing on the coast. So it's funny the circle I kind of went through. So I lived in Florida for 11 years, moved to Missouri, and never did stand-up paddleboarding while I was there. And then a year, year and a half after I was here, I had a buddy send me a picture, and he's like, hey, check this out. These guys are standing up on these surfboards and paddling. And I'm like, yeah, that's great, but I'm no longer in the ocean. You know, so I'm like, what do I do with that? And this was, shoot, 2006, 2007, somewhere in there. Um, and so then I started kind of researching it all and look, and everything was just online because in Missouri, there's nothing. I mean, at the time, it was going to cost me a couple grand to get a board in. Prices were just more expensive back then. Everything had to come from the coast. Um, so just research, research, research. Um, and then the first one I actually saw was the one I built. So I literally started, I spent a year standing up in my canoe. And then I was like, okay, this is, it's kind of like stand-up. And then, so I built a wood strip board that was terrible. That's now hanging on my wall. <laughs> so I built another one that floated, kind of paddled that for a bit. And then I think it was two years down the road, I had a local company that was doing uh, Hobie um, kayaks. And they had a board just because it was Hobie and Hobie makes you know, stand-up paddle boards. And so someone said, hey, you should connect with this guy and they should, you know, get together. And next thing I know, I'm working for them and they're sponsoring me to get on this board and go do things. And literally the first time I got on a board was a full-on race board. So I didn't, 
I kind of like ran before I, I walked. I, I was like, there's no like recreation board. There's a full fast 14 foot, you know, Ferrari, here you go. And I learned on that. Shane loved the way the water looked. Standing on this Ferrari of a paddleboard, there was something inspiring in it for him. And of course, being Shane, he began to imagine racing down rivers for hundreds of miles. So I'm with this company and promoting stuff, and then I told him, hey, it would be kind of neat if I did a couple local races on the stand-up paddleboard. And so I literally had to petition to organizations to be able to get in and say, hey, I'm on this kind of like a kayak thing. You know, can I get in the men's solo division on a kayak? So I get in, I do a 35-mile race on a stand-up paddleboard. Um, I'm like, okay, that was fun. And then there's a 100-mile race. I'm like, hey, I wonder if I could do that. You know, I wonder if I could just finish. I'd just get out there. So I do this 100-mile race, and I, you know, it was a low-water race, and I bust the board's nose, and I just destroy the board. But I finish, whereas, like, I would say only 40 to 50% of people finish the race. It was just a nasty low-water race. So I get a little bit of a foothold into the paddling community with, with this stand-up paddleboard. And so I'm like, how can I kind of tie this all in and, and make a bigger presence? So on the same timeline, I'm coming along on my 10-year uh, kidney transplant anniversary on November 16th. This MR340 race, 340 miles, is it's like... Right around that time, I want to say is the beginning of October. So I was like, oh, what a better way to kill two birds with one stone and celebrate my kidney transplant anniversary, but also be on the river and show people stand-up paddleboard. He said kidney transplant. And yes, that's the first I'd heard of it. He did just mention it casually, like a high school graduation or something. I don't know if the... They say it was IGA or burgers... Um, just hereditary. And in our family line, there hasn't been anything, but there could have been. It just never was caught. Who knows? Hmm. Um, so I didn't know at the time I'm in college, I didn't know what was going on. Started getting headaches, was throwing up a lot, and I just thought I'm partying way too much. You know, vice president of fraternity, I'm living the life. Uh, old college kid at the time. And uh, so what gets scary is I start losing my vision. I lose all the vision in my right eye. It's just the blur. I'm like, whoa, I got to cut down the drinking. So I'm like, no liquor, just beer. You know, so <laughs> the thought of a college kid, a young kid. So I'm like, you know, and I'm still living. So you're losing sight and your thought is, you know, I'll cut back. Cut back. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the, you look back, you're like, what how, the hell? How did I make it to this point in life? Right. Alive? Yeah. You know, like, I don't even know. I don't get yeah. it. Um, so, yeah. So then, you know, I start getting concerned when my left eye starts going blurry. So I'm now, for the most part, blind and I'm, you know, working. Working as a lifeguard at one of the, the local parks at, at Bush Gardens. Um, so finally I go you know, to the dock in the box and I'm like, hey, what's going on? He looks at me and, he, you know, he's, he's looking at my eyes and he says, I've been doing this for about 15 years. And I don't even know what I'm looking at. And so I'm like, great, I'm going blind with this new form of, you know, shame disease. Awesome. So <laughs> referral, referral, I go to a bunch of different doctors. And finally this, this, this nice old German guy, he's like, I'm going to inject dye into your eye, run your blood work. I said, okay, great. The next day he calls me. He says, look, pack your bags. Don't go home. Whatever, wherever you're at, go right to the emergency room. I faxed your charts over. So, like, I'm 26, and I'm freaking out, like, whoa, I'm going to have my eyeballs removed or what's Carved going on? Out. Yeah. right. I don't what's know what's happening. Well, yeah. right. like, so, so he didn't even give you a clue. Didn't just... tell me. Um, I'm like, okay, great. So I don't think he really knew. He just knew there was something really off. 
So blood work, I go in. Um, they they hook me up to the machine, blood pressure. Hey, what are you here for? Having headaches, throwing up a lot, and I'm pretty well blind. Can't see. You know, like I'm, you know, four feet away from you, and I can hear you. I can see a vision of you, but I can't tell your, you know, your features on your face. So blood pressure machine hooks up. They run it a couple times on the machine. Another nurse comes over, runs it a couple times. Someone run does it manually, blood pressure cuff. Then next thing I know, the charge nurse comes, and I'm like, man, these guys are morons. Like, Florida hospitals, you guys are terrible. What's you can't the, even take blood pressure. I know. I'm like, I can even do that. And so it comes down to the, you know, this doctor comes over, and he starts asking me questions finally. And I'm like, you know, he asks me, he's like, well, how do you feel? I'm like, you know, I got headaches. Um, my vision is really what I'm concerned with. It's like, well, your blood pressure is 220 over 185. You shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be standing. And keep in mind, I've been working out. I've been partying. Yeah, it's like your heart should be exploded. You should have a stroke. And I'm like, okay. Well, and at the time, when he says 220 over 185, I'm like, what's normal? Is that bad? Is that bad? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, you're about double. So, you know, next thing you know, four days later, um, I wake up in the hospital and they tell me, you had 100% kidney failure. We're not sure how you're alive. We bring you through dialysis. You're going to be on dialysis for a year. And so life changes. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like, and this is at 26 years old, so I'm, like, I am going to die. This is all I think about. Great. I go from being blind to now I'm going to die. So Wait, so uh, so you were on dialysis for a year? This was in like 2000 or whatever? This is 2001. Okay. Um, so this was probably February 2001 when I go into the these guys and this whole thing happens. Do dialysis until November 16th, 2001. Oh. Uh, three days a week, three and a half hours. I had a clip. Um, yeah, and it's it's a miserable, scary existence at this point. Um, to the point like I'm talking with a gentleman next to me who's probably in his 60s, and it's an everyday thing for months and months. And then one day I look over and I'm like, hey, he doesn't look right, and he's co- he's dying. He's coding out right there. And crash cart, they wheel him out. Next Wednesday, he doesn't come back. So this is like you just watch watch someone your die fade. Yeah, I'm like this is of, yeah my this life. is how I'm going to die. Yeah. And that, that was like the, <laughs> and then it was kind of like, oh, maybe I should start drinking liquor again because I'm going to die and just live it up. You know, no. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it was just a, a weird reality at that point. You know, you're watching someone die. I'm like, this, this is, I'm going to be an old decrepit man at 26. I'm going to die soon. I'm like, great. Um, wow. Yeah. It, it's a change. You're like, you're like, okay, then nothing really matters in life. You're like, just get through another day. Oh, I can get a kidney transplant. Oh, okay. Tell me about that. You know, so there's hope and then it changes. Again. So what, so you got on the list for a kidney oh. transplant and you were mm-hmm. able to receive one, obviously. So yeah, that, that is a interesting um, way that all works. So I got linked up with this place called LifeLink down in Tampa, Florida. They're phenomenal. And they basically took care of all the process of everything, um, crazy part is at the time I didn't have insurance. I didn't have any of that. And so they literally got me county insurance. They did all this kind of stuff, um, put me on the list. And then you start going to family and seeing about matches. And then it comes down to, at the time, this girl that I've been dating for five years is a near perfect match. And then I'm like, if I do this, I'm with this girl for life. You know, I'm like, (laughs) and I, and I'm like, I I can't say that I love her after five years. So that means something that like, okay, I don't think it's the right choice. (laughs) Yeah. So it was like decision time. And then, um, crazy enough, my mother was, uh, so when it, not getting too technical, but when you're born, you get three antigens from your mom, three from your dad, for some freak reason, I guess my mom did some (laughs) pre-planning and I got five antigens from my mom, one from my mom. So she was a near perfect match. And so naturally, you know, 
got to take the mom option. <laughs> I would think Which, so. You could tell your mother that you love her a lot easier than <laughs> a girl you this don't. Girl for five years and no, I love yous. Yeah. Well, I mean, we you were are a hardcore dude. Yeah. Man. Well, even worse is prior to that, I dated a girl for five years and it was wasn't there. And so uh, now my current my wife, uh, well, my my only my first time getting married, <laughs> and I'm still married to her. I dated her for five years until I was like, yes, this is the one. So with this surgically implanted grit, Shane finished the MR340 race. And it was shortly afterward that, that there were these people, the, the same ones who were once laughing at this ridiculous guy standing on his board. Well, they came out of the woodwork. But this time, they wanted in. So kind of my, my friend Dwayne's evil plan of you know, do the 340 and it'll, people will see it. It worked, but it worked in a way I didn't realize because everyone was emailing me and getting a hold of me and saying, hey, how do I do this? Where do I go? And there was really no outlet. Um, the company that I worked for originally, they just, stand-up paddleboard was an accessory. Um, and it wasn't, they just, it was a, a dollar sign for them. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to figure something out. So I bought five boards, took a loan from my parents. And I'm going to just start doing some lessons and trying to get people out there. And so you know, 2012 was starting with five boards, ending with about 12 to 13 boards at the end of the year because it kept growing and people wanted to come out. And I was like, okay, something started here. And then 2013, I started the season, I think, with about 12, you know, kept a few, bought some new ones, 12, 15 boards. Every year, it's just started growing more people like, you know, where do we go to do this? I'm like, well, hey, I happen to have some boards. I happen to have a, a, a business, you know. Um and then the vision started coming, like, this can be something where I can bring stand-up paddleboarding. Like, no one else was invested. No one wanted to do it. Uh, it's very expensive. The boards, the equipment, a decent board you're going to spend a 1000 bucks on. Um, you know, and then you got to run insurance on your business. you got to get paddles. You're going to spend a 1000 bucks paddles and life jackets and BFTs. All, you know, it runs down a line. And so I just was kind of collecting as I went. Uh, and I said, I'm going to do this. I'm in the long haul. I'm not going to nickel and dime people. I'm going to make it very inexpensive. Um, they're going to get the top quality stuff and we're going to build the sport grassroots, just make it happen where people understand like this is a viable sport we can do out here in Missouri. So Shane really wants the sport to get the respect it deserves. And he started a business to make that respect even more sustainable. I mean, he's driven, but just how far is he willing to go? It started as a, you know, a few drinks, hanging out with friends, and some guy says, hey, did you see these paddleboarders try to do this 300-mile race? They only made it 100 miles. They only made 100 miles. Ooh, I can do that. I can, I can make 300. Okay. Let me start thinking about this. So and how so, did you train? So training was, this is the insanity. So I wake up in the morning, and everything's out of my house. So I do P90X, 4 a.m. I go to work for the parks department in Webster. And eight-hour physical day doing all kinds of stuff in the horticulture team for the parks. I come home, hang out with the family a little bit. I'm back downstairs doing my cardio. I get an hour of cardio in. So this is Monday. Running, walking, so, whatever, uh, I had a, an ergometer that I built. Basically, You built an ergometer? Yeah, so we'll built it off a rowing machine. And, yeah, I had to modify it so I could stay. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, so, yeah, it, it, stuff didn't exist. The equipment wasn't there. Now they have them, which... So you built pit. an ergometer to mimic the muscle groups used in stand-up paddling. Correct. And so I get on that or I would do insanity workout. And then Friday nights, Saturday nights, some Sundays, it was six to ten hours on the ergometer watching Netflix and just hammering. 
And that was my training for months, like four or five months. You trained for exactly. the ocean by watching Netflix <laughs> on an ergometer. <laughs> yeah. It was just because there was no way to, to really You train. can't mimic the ocean, yeah. And right? Like, yeah. And, then, and so this is the middle of winter I'm training. I can't go out and paddle on the board. And so the, the funny thing was we joke about uh, me and my friends literally going into the ra race for the six months leading up to it. I had about 60 miles of on-water training. And that was like five miles here, seven miles there. Everything was done in the basement. And then it was just, well, let's see what happens. Roll the dice. Shane took his basement train body. He drove down to Tampa Bay for this race. And just a heads up on this thing, it's called the Everglades Challenge. It's absolutely stupid. It's 300 miles long around the Gulf side of the state of Florida. Hardly anyone who enters this thing alone finishes. Entering the race comes with the following warnings. If you are not an expert paddler or sailor, do not enter this race. Even if you are a well-prepared paddler or sailor, you may die. Yeah, die. And Shane doesn't just enter the race to finish. He enters knowing that he plans to keep paddling for another 100 miles. I mean, why not? So you did that, so and you finish, like you go through the finish line, yeah. and everybody's like, "Great job, Shane! That's amazing!" You know, yeah. three hundred miles, and you're like, "Yeah, totally. Sorry, I gotta go." Yeah. Well, I did. I stuck around for the award ceremony the next day, <laughs> and I uh, hung out. And it's and it was one of those things you don't do it. There's no cash. There's nothing like that. There's a, a little wooden paddle you get, and a shark tooth necklace. You know, you can buy for ten bucks so, at a souvenir shop. So these dudes, uh, like, right? These paddle dudes, yeah. this community. Would you say? I mean, they are. They're, they seem extremely intrinsically motivated. Yeah, it's that intrinsic value of doing. I mean, this is so to, in perspective, when I had finished that race in the years, I can't remember how many years the race had been running, there were, there really weren't a lot of solos that finished. Like every year, I think their attrition rate was like 40 to 60%. And so, I mean, it's just brutal. Mostly because people don't know what they're getting into and they don't train, they don't understand. Like you're living on a vessel for. For <laughs> 300 miles. Um, so you had to, like, take your stuff with you. Yeah, full gear. I mean, it's like, and you're stopping it. You know, when you stop, you jump in a convenience store or a restaurant, and you're buying food. I was in the middle of the night. <laughs> Sounds terrible. I'm going up to houses, look, make sure they're on motion detectors, going up and filling all my water jugs in their water spigot on the side of their house, and then running back to my board, getting on <laughs> and going. You know, so it's like a crazy ordeal. Um, and everyone I talk to about this race, they're like, it's not, like, and we don't go bragging about it. We just do it. And it's just almost like this small little cult of people that have finished that you get accepted. So for them, it's called, you know, the water tribe. You're in this tribe. And when you finish, that's the only time that you're part of this tribe. And so it's a, it's an exclusive group. And when you're in, you're in. And so I'm in. And it's crazy because three years out, I still keep communications with some of these people because it's, it's that small eclectic group of people that have gone through. It's like a brotherhood. It's almost, and I will not equate it to the military, but how they have that brotherhood, it's kind of the same thing except no guns and and blood and it's more of the blood like you're ripping your finger off on some kind of coral or you know. yeah cuz it could yeah. it can rain yeah it can storm you yep. could have wave oh yeah i got washed by a wave just keep in mind, this race is in You're March. standing. This is in March, and it's 38 degrees out. This is Florida, and it's cold. Like, people don't realize, like, 
Oh, yeah, you went and paddled in the sunshine. No, no. Like, they're, they're, the high for the day was 43. And so, you that know, water you is in, freezing yeah. cold. So 11 o'clock at night, I get washed in a wave at Fort Myers. And then, like, I'm, like, doing everything I do, can do to get my stuff on the beach. And people are looking at, like, look at this idiot pulling in here. And I'm going, I'm, like, pre-hypothermic, and I can feel it. Like, I'm trying to get all my gear. And so it's decision time. Like, what do you do? And so I'm like, hey, can I stash my board here at this bar? Can I throw it under your dock or your, your deck? And then you're walking in town and you're, you're getting a hotel room and you're just trying to stay warm and get your body temp back up. You're just rattling so, under the sheets at a motel yeah, yeah, for a yeah. few hours and then getting back on your board. And going. And going again. Yeah. Yep. How long so did it take you to finish this Florida race? So this was six days for the 300 miles. Oh, my. And that's sleeping yeah. an hour, an hour and a half a night. Getting washed out in the freezing water, living off of your board for days, traveling in the darkness. This was nothing compared to what happened to Shane after his second day on the water. Already tired, with his body pumping battery acid, he was about to encounter something completely unexpected. Yeah, and I was pretty beat up at that point. And so, you know, you don't think, like, it's literally a marina where... You know, half a million dollar yachts, the keys are sitting in them. It's like, and people don't think twice of it. So I'm like, oh, this is a good decision. This is the best place I can sleep. Out of the dock, and I'm going to go sleep in the parking lot where I can get a break from the wind. Meanwhile, the marina's opening at this time. It's like 6 a.m., and then I'm getting cussed at, like, what the F are you doing here? Get off our property. I'm trying to file a police report. When you're done, get the F out of here. And, like, literally, they're... Because they're, you're a hobo at this point, exactly. right? I mean, yeah. you're just a vagrant. Yeah. And then... To, to make it even better, they got this big machine and they're going up in the stacks of boats and they're like essentially forklifting boats out, putting them in like two feet away from my board and like nearly running over my. So I'm like, I, I don't know. Everything running through my head, I'm like, I just got robbed. My board's going to get crushed. I'm going to get arrested because this guy, once the, this whole report is done, this guy's going to file an arrest complaining. I'm like, like, what the heck do I do, you know? Um, and so literally I went, you know, and my crew finally got me to pick me up and I go to this uh, Waffle House or IHOP, whatever it was at the time. And I'm like, let's just eat some food. And, you know, once that liquor store opens, I'm going over there and I'm <laughs> going to buy something and just drink on a beach. You know, let's say hey, I got a few days off from work. Why not? And then, uh, you know, I posted online social media that, hey, this is what's happened. And people, hey, I've got a GPS. I will overnight it to you. I will, you know, a guy from Tennessee, Ben Freeberg, big friend paddler, um, you know, this one guy, John, was saying, he's like, how much do you need? I'll wire a couple hundred bucks to you. And then like, who are these people? So these are people that had in the stand-up paddleboard community that kind of knew of me through the different doing the different things prior. So they're from all over the country. Yeah. California, Tennessee, North Carolina, um, everywhere. And then the, we're, we're going to get you back on the water. Because this is this it, the stand-up paddleboard community, as I started finding out, was like they're a tight-knit group that take care of their own. And they take care of everybody else, too. But these people were vested in me finishing, which I didn't know. You know, I'm getting, like, phone calls of strangers that, hey, I'll swing by. It'll take me an hour to get there, and I'll drop you cash. I'll, I'm like, what? what is, and I'm talking to my crew, and I'm like, what is going on? I don't know what to do. And I'm like, almost like, stop giving me money because I'm done. And then <laughs> it was weird. So the gross part, I go in there, and I'm sitting on the john in this restaurant. And I'm like, I'm in tears because I don't know. Like, I'm torn. Like, the generosity, the, like, ugh did I just screw this up or do I still have time to recover? And I literally came out, I looked at the guys in tears and I'm like, I'm going next door to West Marine 
and I'm buying all new crap, and I'm getting back on the water. And in a 12-hour span, this all happens, and I'm out there, and I'm back. And I'm just fierce on the water because, like, yeah, you're fucking. I'm, I'm right. ready. You know, I'm pissed that all my crap got stolen, but I'm like, I have this community behind me of, like, you need to go because we're behind you. Did you know that they were there before this moment? Not, not as much. There's little, like, blips. I would post kind of stuff on social media, like, yeah, keep going, good job. And then it got to the point, like, you are representing us. Go, go. And I'm like, Whew. like, even now it's choking up. It's choking me up because it's like I think of those times and think of like strangers and people that I just might have like message online once in a while. They're like, you're representing us, man. We're, we want you to finish and you got to finish. And they I'm, saw themselves in you. Yeah, yeah. And so this was a big step for stand up paddleboarding. And it was beyond me. This wasn't even at this point. It changed the dynamic where it's not about a kidney. It's not about being the first at something. It's about taking my community and, and raising the level of, you know, of, of the viewership, like people, how they look at this viewing. Wow. This is inspirational. Shane's story is about commitment. It's one thing to be driven to create something new in the world. It's another thing to inspire a following, a group of people who will go to any lengths just to help you, just to see you finish. But the finish line in Florida is far from the end of Shane's story. Maybe you feel like he's been through enough trials, but it turns out he had another demon, something much more formidable. It becomes a cycle of depression uh, only fueled by a highlight of alcohol. Medicating with the alcohol yeah. and then... Yeah, self-medicating and then... And then the medication leads to yeah. further depression. Yeah, the depression. so it's just this vicious cycle I'm in and looking forward to all day. Oh, okay. Netflix and so. so there's more more tragedy triumph the human experience all in part two and if you want more photos or background on what you've heard so far you can go to the behumanproject.net or check out the show notes for links to more information about Shane this has been More Human a production of the Be Human Project editing and sound design by Khalees Walker with art direction by Steph Sabo and Kess Arnold. It's hosted by me, Jeremy Newlick. We record and produce this thing at our studio at Big White Sky, a human business consultancy. To subscribe to More Human, search for More Human anywhere you subscribe to podcasts. And to learn more about the Be Human Project or if you dig anything you've heard so far, check out our website at behumanproject.net and visit often. We love humans.